Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Monday, November 21st. Last week, a rogue missile struck rural Poland, killing two people. Is the conflict in Eastern Europe spilling over the Russia and Ukraine borders? And at what point will NATO step in to defend member countries like Poland? We'll get an update on the situation from Stephen Sademan from the Department of International Affairs at Carleton University. Facebook is in decline, Twitter in chaos. Are we witnessing the death of social media, at least the way we know it? We'll discuss what the future may hold for the popular platforms with Ian Bogost, professor of computer science and engineering at Washington University in St. Louis. Next, he sure has a way with words. And now funny man Ron James is bringing his words to a stage near you in his new one-man show called Back Where I Belong. We catch up with Ron James to hear what fans can expect from his first major tour since 2019. And finally, we hear the personal story of how one woman used a major life-changing event to spark a career change and influence others through fitness. On this edition of Motivational Monday, we meet entrepreneur and transformational coach Jody Barrett. Are neighboring countries being drawn into the conflict between Russia and Ukraine? And at what point will NATO have to step in to defend member countries like Poland that was struck by a rogue missile last week? Joining us to talk about it is Stephen Sademan, Patterson Chair in International Affairs, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, as well as being the Director of Canadian Defence and Security Network. Good morning to you, Stephen. Thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. It feels like the world is on the edge of, uh, you know, potentially a greater conflict after the missile strike in Poland. So what does NATO have to do and what does NATO have the responsibility to do to make sure that member countries are defended? Well, first, uh, as we learned over the weekend, this missile strike was not directly targeting Polish territory, but what was the anti-aircraft missiles that that Ukraine uses to uh, shoot down Russia's missiles. Uh, but what we saw, when even when people believed it was a Russian rogue Russian missile, it was not going to lead to World War III. It was not going to lead to Article 5 being invoked. That is the, the part of the NATO treaty that says an attack upon one equals an attack upon all. It was seen, this entire episode was seen as being uh, an inadvertent episode. And NATO has been very, very clear about trying to make sure things don't escalate just because there's a one-off kind of uh, incident like this. Stephen, uh, when we hear the term Article 5, I think a lot of us have not heard much or thought much about what Article 5 and the protocols surrounding it when it comes to NATO is exactly. Uh, so that's the question that came up last week. Article 5, can you, can you break down the details for it? Sure. And, uh, you know, how much flexibility there is without, with, under that umbrella of Article 5? Sure. Uh, there is nothing automatic about Article 5 or about the NATO alliance that first the allies have to agree that attack has happened. Uh, this has happened only once in NATO's history, which is in the aftermath of 9-11. There have been other times where allies have been hit uh, by bombs or missiles or artillery, namely Turkey, during the Syrian crisis. But nobody in, uh, sought to invoke Article 5. And again, to have it happen, the allies have to come to consensus, which means maybe not every single member has to agree, but most of the members have to agree, particularly the most powerful ones. So that's the first step is having everybody agree. Uh, then, when the, uh, if it does get invoked, it actually doesn't require anybody to do anything. It means that there should be a collective response, but there's an opt-out clause within Article 5 that basically says each country should do as it deems necessary, which means that uh, countries don't have to participate. So in the aftermath of 9-11, the main way NATO helped the United States was to send over those AWACS planes. Those are the radar planes that have the big dishes on top. 
and those have multinational crews. And uh, what happened after 9-11 was that some countries refused to have their 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 staffers, their 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 military people, be on those planes because they didn't want to be part of a, a chain of events where you might see a that an AWACS plane, uh, these uh, radar planes, signal to fighter planes to shoot down a civilian airliner. That was the imagined scenario, and countries didn't want to participate. So even in that high stakes post 9/11 event, there are countries that chose not to participate. So even if Article Five was invoked because Russia attacked Poland, it wouldn't necessarily mean that every country in NATO would get involved. Beyond Article 5, Stephen, mistake, accidental, deliberate, do you think that there's a a likelihood that the war between Russia and Ukraine could begin to spill beyond their borders? I think it's possible, but I don't think it's likely. I think that what we've seen here is that Russia is engaging in more risky behavior in that their assault on Ukrainian civilians and on Ukrainian uh, energy infrastructure, that is power plants, power lines, that kind of thing, uh, last week was out of character from the rest of the war, which is that we hadn't seen the Russians shoot that many missiles or dropping that many bombs near the border. so they're engaging in more risky behavior. So that does raise the risks of escalation a little bit. But right now, Russia benefits greatly from the NATO not being involved in the war. They have no real benefit to get the NATO to, to start getting involved in the war because that would mean that pretty much every ship in the Black Sea, every Russian ship in the Black Sea would be vulnerable. Uh, the, the Ukrainians would suddenly have a, a lot more powerful air force. And the Russians would be in a world of hurt. So the Russians aren't trying to get NATO involved at this point in time. And NATO is an alliance of countries that don't entirely agree on what to do next. So I don't think they're going to jump in at the at the first provocation or the second provocation. It might be pie in the sky, Stephen, to ask you exactly you know how this is going to end up. If anybody had the answer to that, I mean, that would be incredible. But uh, we did not expect it to last more than maybe even a few weeks, and now we're uh, 10 months into it, or you know, getting close to the year when we move into February. Uh, but what does, uh, not that long term, what does the winter hold for this conflict? What are you seeing? What do you think is going to happen? Well, all the momentum is with the Ukrainians, so I don't expect them to stop attacking just because it's cold. Uh, and in some ways, the cold will make things a little easier because some of the mud will firm up. Uh, make it easier for for them to move, and the Russians have been disorganized, and so the the one thing you don't want to do is uh, in, in a war like this is give your adversary a chance to catch up and 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 uh, reorganize. So the Ukrainians are going to keep fighting, and they're not going to agree to a ceasefire because a ceasefire benefits the Russians uh, unless they get a real commitment for the Russians to pull out of the country. Um, now the, the war is going to last much longer. There's no doubt about that. Uh, unless the Russians decide to pull out. That's the key thing going on here. The Ukrainians are not going to give up, and they're not going to give in. Uh, even with them losing all this uh, energy plants, all these power plants, they're already talking about evacuating some of the more vulnerable cities to, to the, the cold wave. And uh, so the Ukrainians have been smart and adaptable and flexible, and the Russians have not been any of those things, really. And so we should expect those patterns to continue. But with Russia having a more more troops to throw into the fight, it'll be hard for the Ukrainians to, to get lots of territory. But they've been able to uh, outmaneuver the Russians, and I expect that to continue. 
and, and, you know, as we move into the cold months here, I suspect it's just as cold there, but, you know, Russia pounding Ukraine's power grid and other infrastructure, mm-hmm. you know, leaving Ukrainians without heat, power, water, that sort of thing. Obviously, that's a drawback for the Ukrainian people, but do more of the allies jump in, step in to try and help out in that case? Well, well they already are. We're sending, you know, we're sending winter gear to their soldiers. Uh, other other countries are sending winter gear to their soldiers. Um I maybe there'll be some way to string power lines or send power from Poland or, or other neighboring countries. I'm not sure how that will work. Uh, but certainly there'll be more humanitarian aid and assistance. There might be more willingness to host refugees. Uh, so I think that outsiders uh, to the West are going to give more assistance. Uh, this all is an effort to try to divide uh, Ukraine from its friends, and I don't think it's going to work. Uh, on the other hand, uh, one key thing to remember is the Russians aren't well equipped for winter. They're, that all the corruption that affected their ability to just have tanks and and trucks drive in springtime are also affected the ability for their soldiers to get winter gear. And so this is this winter is going to hurt the Russian soldier as much or more than it's going to hurt the Ukrainian soldier. Wow, interesting. We appreciate your insight uh, on this topic because I know it uh, continues on, and we have to keep uh, talking about it and keep the conversation alive. Thanks so much, Stephen. My pleasure, Andy. That is Stephen Sademan, Patterson Chair in International Affairs, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University and Director, Canadian Defence and Security Network. Twitter CEO Elon Musk told employees to prepare to work under extremely hardcore conditions or get out. Are we witnessing the death of the social media era? Joining us to talk about it is Ian Bogos, Director of Film and Media Studies and Professor of Computer Science and Engineering at Washington University in St. Louis. Good morning to you, Ian. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, good morning. Appreciate your time. Twitter, not the only tech company in chaos, seeing massive job layoffs at Meta or Facebook, jobs at Amazon, even Netflix. What's going on? What's happening with this social media era? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, maybe it's the end. Um, we, we've been living under the thumb of posting all the time and seeing what other people have been posting for about 10, 12 years now. And, and, uh, these new changes, uh, maybe maybe they represent uh, a shift to something else. Um, uh, we've seen it before, and it can happen again. We could dig more into the user base and, and perhaps how things are changing, but I want to get specifically to Twitter. And I know that this is your world, Ian, and you study these sorts of things. Elon Musk takes the reins, and the changes are coming fast and furiously. I know that those folks who uh, tweet a lot are, are unhappy with these changes. Do we know what the <laughs> end game is? Uh, for Elon Musk, why why would he want to do something like this to the co- the company yeah, that's doing so it's well? It's a great question. Yeah, he's he's uh, unmappable in, in, in some ways. It's hard to know what, what Musk is, is thinking. I've, I've, you know, uh, he 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 doesn't operate the same way as, as other business leaders. And even though he's the richest man in the world, he certainly doesn't seem to put uh, financial value first uh, either. So I think one of the things people are reacting to is, is not necessarily anything he's doing, but the sense of of chaos, the sense of this feeling like like we're at, at sea in a storm, ready to wreck at, at any moment. And that worry of being like, you know, where are we going to wash up on shore and, and, and what's next for, for people who enjoy the platform um, or who use it uh, for community and, uh, and socialization there uh, are worried about that. Ian, curious, you talked about a move potentially to perhaps something else. So what could that be? Is there another platform lurking in the background? We've heard Mastodon, TikTok is, is certainly huge. What do you think replaces the the Twitters and, and the Facebooks of the world? 
Yeah, right. Uh, I mean, hopefully not more of the same. You see people running off to these other platforms, Mastodon, Hive, as the newest one people are talking about, or they're you know withdrawing to LinkedIn or what have you. And uh, if the social media era is, is going to end, um, then we have to kind of give up on those things. And what I mean by like, the social media era is this, this age when everyone thought they deserved, they hadn't deserved an audience with everyone else all the time. So one thing I've been interested in is kind of downscaling our, our attention and our, um, and, and our audiences. And the previous age, that sort of 20, 2000s era of social networking and Facebook and all these were new, uh, strikes me as a, a, a healthier, healthier alternative when we were connecting with people we knew or people of who, who people we knew knew uh, rather than trying to broadcast to the world all the time. The broadcasting part, I, I get where you're going with that, Ian, but also in my uh, eyes, I look at things like, you know, Facebook used to be, again, family and friends and the pictures and the connections. Right. It wasn't about politics, it wasn't about mm. religion, and there weren't so many sales sites. Could the commercialization and the politicizing of these sites be part of the downfall as well? No, it was definitely part of the problem because uh, what these companies discovered was that the more they could get our attention and the more they could collect data and the more they could monetize that data for, for advertising and the more engaged we were, uh, the more part of the we participated in, in those systems. And one way of producing that engagement was, um, you know, through the, the kind of uh, most lurid uh, material possible. And that's what started getting amplified on Facebook and Twitter uh, and, and elsewhere. And, then, you know, that, the political speech that you're talking about. And so but whether you agree with it or not, it didn't really matter. It was about um, inciting people's uh, emotions. Uh, so that certainly had a lot to do with the, the unhealthy patterns of behavior that we've, we've seen online. I don't know what we would do with all our free time, Ian. We just got a text in saying, <laughs> oh, heaven above, I hope social media dies. We would all win if it's not replaced. But there's always going to be something else that comes up and, and sucks us into the wormhole of losing time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because a lot of us feel like we've we've been wasting time uh, like that, or that with that time would be better used. And um, uh, you know, the thing is that it's not just a matter of the time that we're spending, but the the, the, the quality of that time. There was, there was something about more deeply interacting with people that we that we knew or that we lost lost touch with uh, in the kind of first age of Facebook. Um, that didn't feel like wasting time, right? It felt like, oh, wow, like there's someone I haven't talked to for mm-hmm. years or decades, or so I'm able to keep up with these you know, communities or hobbies or whatever uh, uh, that I have. So I, I think that, that sense of uh, a time suck of just sort of the infinite scroll of your, of your phone, it hasn't always been that mm-hmm. way, which means that maybe it doesn't always happen. That's a good point. Uh, well, who knows what the future holds, but some yeah. great insight from you, Ian. We appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That is Ian Bogost, writer, game designer, director of film and media studies, and professor of computer science and engineering at Washington University in St. Louis. You can find out more. He's got a personal website, bogost.com, and that's B-O-G-O-S-T.com. For over two decades, Ron James has been selling out venues coast to coast, and now the award-winning comedian returns to Calgary for his latest show, Back Where I Belong. Ron joins us now with details. Good morning to you, Ron. How you doing, brother? Always a pleasure to be stringing my trap line across the big wide open, if you'll pardon the metaphor. Watch your step. You might... <laughs> uh, uh, I'm all over the West, you know, when you're, when you're rolling under that big belly of blue in some raptor-rich corner of the country and a sun-smiley meadowlark morning, 
watching the wind rule. Boy, oh boy, it'll get the most rabid of atheists singing hymns forgotten, won't it? <laughs> oh, that's the Ron James that we know and love. And uh, your fans, you know, whether it's from, from the many different TV programs that you've been part of, maybe it's even the written word. We can get to, into some of that maybe if we have time. Sure. But uh, more than anything... Uh, your live performances, we love to see you live. And I know that as a performer, it can be a challenging for you. I know it's a passion project to, to bring the new and uh, bring that on the road. So tell us what people need to know about Back Where I Belong. You know, we've just been through uh, two and a half years of a roller coaster ride into a dystopian netherworld in the grip of a killer pathogen where you'd sell your soul for a hug or a haircut. <laughs> um, so I'm trying to process the trauma we've all been through in the language of laughs. And, uh, you know, I'm also dealing with, uh, you know, the different things that occur in life as you change. When I started out years ago, it was about family road trips with my kids, wanting to go to the bathroom too much. And now it's about midlife dating for seen <laughs> silver singles. They have the audacity... <laughs> Honest to God, my, my buddy made a joke. He said, why do they call it um, our time? They should just be honest and call it our time's almost up. <laughs> <laughs> or end times, maybe. Oh, come on. I mean, you know, we're all conscious of mortality now, too. I mean, I think COVID taught us that it's no longer another man's worry. I, uh, you know, the bulk of baby boom in 20 years are going to be roaming the home in our Led Zeppelin onesies just to sing along the way from taking a stairway to heaven. So <laughs> We're, we're going to be uh, directing people to artscommons.ca, the big show Back Where I Belong. Uh, we'll be uh, taking place at Arts Commons, uh, Jacksonville Concert Hall, December 9th. Uh, but I want to also, last time we had the chance to talk, one of the things we yeah. discovered about you is you certainly, you know, obviously are very observational. You did not go into hibernation during the pandemic and the so-called lockdowns. You wrote a book all over the map, Rambles and Ruminations from the Canadian Road. Was that uh, something that helped you fill the time, or did you always have this book and it just happened to, to be the time that you wrote it? Uh, well, yeah, that's a great question, but I think I'd, I'd always had intentions of writing a love letter to the nation that um, fed my family for 25 years, and it's called All Over the Map, Rambles and Ruminations from the Canadian Road, and uh, it was a bestseller. And uh, I was nominated for the Stephen Leacock Award, which was quite an honor. Uh, but more than anything, it was an embrace of the virtues of people in place, from Corner Brook to Courtney Comox and all these different places in between that uh, I've heard the hum of asphalt beneath my wheels all these years. And it was an honor to be asked to write the book by Penguin Random House. It was customized. And... Um, I, uh, you know, I just, I just did the work that had to be done, and I knew that we'd get to the other side. And, you know, I've been on the road for uh, a year. We started out last year in Atlantic Canada, and uh, if there's anything I noticed, it's how much people are enjoying being out in public again. And really, I think that's what we missed was us, because at the end of the day, us is all we've got. Everything else is just a spoiler on a Dodge Neon. Hey, there you, that's a great analogy. I uh, I love it, and we're glad to have you back where you belong. Back where I belong is the name of your tour and the name of the show that can be checked out, artscommons.ca. It takes place December 9th at the Jack Singer Concert Hall. The one and only Ron James. Thank you Thank so much. Thank you so much. I mean, that theater means so much to me. It's where I, 
I shot one of my most popular specials, Quest for the West, way back in 2006. The legendary Ron James. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Take her easy, bud. She was a married, stay-at-home mom, then a major life change, turned her world upside down, and that's when Jody Barrett decided to take matters into her own hands and create a path for herself, and ultimately to her current-day career, helping others reach their goals. On this edition of Motivational Monday, we meet Jody Barrett, lifestyle transformational trainer and coach from Kettlebell Kickboxing Canada. Good morning to you, Jody. Good morning. How are you guys? Good. Thank you for getting up early with us. So let's let's start from the start, Jody. Tell us about the pivot your life took and what was the shift that led you to where you are today? All right. Um, yeah, so... Basically, I was always into fitness. I, you know, I stayed at home, raised my kids, and I spent a lot of time in the morning when they went to school at the gym. And I just had, I had my, I always tell about it was my, my moment, my aha moment when I was standing at the gym and about ready to lift and do go about my day, and I just couldn't do anything. And I, you know, I had that real moment where I looked at myself in the mirror and I was like. Physically, my body was very capable, and that's the day I left the gym. I didn't touch a weight, and I went for a walk, and I realized that some things had to change um, in order for me to go forward. So, yeah, it kind of sent me into a <laughs> a huge life-changing moment where, you know, and even look, looking back on it today, it's kind of where I interlace. Um, when people train, it's more about the you know, it's not just the physical, it's the internal too, because it was the moment I had where I realized that I, I had some internal stuff I really had to work on to get myself through that time. So that was that was my big, big aha moment for sure. I hear that, Jody. You know, I think sometimes that's why we don't have the success that we think we probably should, because it is so uh, body, mind and spirit. And if you don't have all three kind of in line as you work towards a goal, it's tough to get there. Tell us a little bit about Kettleball Kickboxing Canada. What is that? So it is martial arts motion fused in with um, kettlebell training. So Basically, the nice thing about it is we take a lot of martial arts that has the mobility component of it. So, like, I know a lot of my clients on the mats when they train with me, they that's the, the number one thing that they notice when I, when we first start. And there's movements um, that we do. They're like, oh, no, they can't perform them. And then about two, three weeks later, you know, they'll come up after class and they'll be like, oh, I can actually do that now. And just allows them to move through the day um, with, with ease and, that, and you know, um, as we get older, we know that, you know, maybe lifting heavy, heavy and, you know, running fast might not be on our top priorities anymore. And we just want to function um, well throughout the day. I uh, called you uh, to sue the Kettlebell Queen of Canada because I saw your fantastic <laughs> videos. And in my fitness journey, what's really surprised me uh, in this round of, you know, I want to take better care of myself is at the gym. I'm noticing more and more young girls, and I'm talking about girls maybe 17 to 25 years old lifting and uh, working mm-hmm. on weights, which wasn't even 20 years ago. didn't see any of that. And then I saw that odd-shaped item called the kettlebell, which has very much come into fashion. So can you tell us about your love for kettlebells and, and why you find them effective in a workout? Well, you know, it, honestly, I kind of I stumbled upon kettlebell myself. Um, when, I, when I separated and I went through my aha moment of having to make some changes, I, um, I went to a friend that I went to university with. He was swinging kettlebell out of his garage. And 
I will also, another moment I'll never forget is when I picked up the bell and I was swinging the bell. Now, when you swing a kettlebell and you've got the right form, you'll find a center of balance, I believe. But when I did it that day, I was something about it. It just felt supernatural. And to this day, when I have meetings that I do and, you know, a friend of mine who's like, okay, go swing your kettlebell 30 times and then we'll get on the meeting. <laughs> so it's just something that... Um, I connected with right away it gave me a sense of balance that probably I was searching for also and once I started training with it um I just noticed such huge changes in myself like I've always been active and within fitness and I can I can I can say that I'm probably the strongest I've been my entire life with my core training of the kettlebell for sure Jody I wouldn't normally ask this question but in this case I will how old are you will you tell us I think I think aging is a privilege, so yeah, I'm very honored to be 47. Well, you look <laughs> amazing, so obviously you are doing something right. Can you offer up some motivational t- uh, tips, maybe some tricks for our listeners, something that you do that kind of helps you keep moving forward even when you're having a bad day? Absolutely. We actually talked about this a little bit. Um, so motivation is very short-lived. <laughs> Hopefully motivation will get you started, but motivation is not going to stay with you. I say this first one really lightly um, because for me, it's more discipline and habit. So discipline being, you know, I do it over and over. And even on the days that I don't want to, I just show up because it's part of my day. It's become as easy, you know, you, show, you wake up in the morning, you brush your teeth, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's that over and over. Um, another one where I think people relate a little bit more is how you look and feel in your clothes. If I feel kind of yuck and I know I've got stuff to do, I will put on something that is, you know, a little bit more like your tight spandex. You look in the mirror and you're like, okay, you know, I got to work for this if I'm going to keep it, right? So that's kind of a a more surface (laughs) um, motivation, I guess, I would use. And, yeah, really, it's discipline, habit. And another one, I think when people figure out that how much it helps you mentally, yeah, that's a huge one. Like I have clients that will come in, they're like, you know, I used to, it was such a, you know, it was hard to get here. And then I started coming and then I realized when I left, like my mindset, my mind felt clear. And then they use that as a motivation. So if, you know, if you get, if you can train it long enough to create a habit, then the, I think the benefits, it'll, it'll just snowball for you. Here's the thing. All you're talking about, Jody, makes complete sense. But what would you say? We've got like 30 seconds left here to that person who is, you know, getting out of bed right now or in the car saying, I've been meaning to try to get more physical for my mental health and physical health. uh, But I just uh, I I can't I I can't find where to start. What would you say to that person? Uh, I know we can't change people's lives, but what what would you say in in one phrase? That start can be anything. Like we do, I do, I do 100 push-ups a day. We had a, a push-up challenge. We did do what you can do. I'm like, your start might be, you know, walking for five minutes. Mm-hmm. It might be doing five push-ups. And then tomorrow you do five more. And then the next day you do 10. Like you just have to start somewhere. It doesn't have to be huge. You know, it doesn't have to be a 45-minute workout. Just start with something, right? So maybe when you're watching TV, maybe you're going to do, you know, 10 squats. And that's your start. Love it. You got to start somewhere. Perfect. Great motivation on a Monday morning. Thank you so much for joining us, Jody. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Jody Barrett, lifestyle transformation trainer and coach.
Kettleball Kickboxing Canada. Kettleballkickboxingcanada.com is the website to find out more.